If you'd please turn in your Bibles to the book of Isaiah, we're going to look at chapter 43, verses 1 through 3, which we just sang a few moments ago, and that's uh, found on page 603 in the Pew Bible. And just a reminder of where we are in our study in the book of Isaiah. The first 39 chapters of this book concerned events that were actually contemporary with the prophet Isaiah. They happened during the reigns of King Uzziah and Jotham and Ahaz and Hezekiah. This was in the southern kingdom of Judah. And these chapters are primarily a message of judgment. Judgment against God's people for their apostasy, for uh, rejecting the covenant they had with God. They wanted to be like everyone else. They did not want to be set apart for God. But we also see judgments against the surrounding nations for the evil that they committed. They committed evil against the, the light that was given to them. And God's primary instrument of this judgment that we saw in the first 39 chapters was the nation of Assyria, the Assyrian Empire, which dominated this region uh, and basically conquered all the surrounding nations of Judah, including God's apostate people in the northern kingdom of Israel. But God preserved Jerusalem. He preserved his city, Jerusalem. And even though they were unfaithful, God miraculously delivered his people, Judah, from the Assyrians. And we saw that, we studied that in Isaiah chapter 37. Now, judgment is delayed in the days of of Isaiah, but judgment is coming. Now, the second section of Isaiah's prophecy, this is future from the time of Isaiah. Chapter 40 to the end of the book, they actually speak to a time and to a people that are 150 years after Isaiah lived. Judah and Jerusalem at this point had now fallen. They'd fallen not to the Assyrians, but they had fallen to the Babylonians. And the message of this section is not about judgment, but it's about comfort. God comforts his people through these words that were written 150 years earlier. He's comforting these hurting people that are in captivity in Babylon. And he's encouraging them. He's encouraging them to persevere. He's promising them that their, their time of chastisement is quickly coming to an end. They're going to be returned back to the promised land. But God is also clear to his people. He tells them that they are, they are the ones who are responsible. It's their own fault for the situation in which they find themselves. And the verses immediately preceding what we're going to look at this morning, in chapter 42, verses 18 through 25, God basically calls his people deaf. He says they're deaf because they refuse to hear refuse to to listen to his word. And he calls them blind. He says they're blind because they refuse to see his hand directing history, his sovereign hand. And because of their willful blindness and their willful deafness, God removes his hand of protection from his people. See, the people wanted to be like everyone else. So what he does, he lets them be like everyone else. And thus they suffer defeat and and they're brought into captivity. So this is the immediate context for these comforting words that we now come to in Isaiah chapter 43. Here now the word of the Lord. Isaiah 43, verses 1 through 3. But now thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, He who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the waters, they shall not overcome you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you. Let's pray. 
Father, we pray for your spirit to be with us, that you will anoint the preaching of your word. Father, I pray for your Holy Spirit to be with me, that I will speak your words, that they will be true words. I will speak them through the power of the Holy Spirit. And I pray for the Holy Spirit to be with each one of us here, listening. Lord, that we will hear a message from you and we will be changed. We will see you. We will bring you glory. And Father, we pray that this whole time will bring you glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the original audience of this message, they were in misery. They were defeated. They were humiliated. They were moved from their homes, separated from their families, forced to to assimilate into a pagan culture, forced to abandon their identity as God's covenant people, forced to see their God blasphemed. And to make it even worse, they had no one else to blame but themselves. What a horrible, what a horrible position they find themselves. And they're trying, they're trying desperately to maintain their identity, trying to remember that they are God's chosen people. But they really have no hope. Looking to themselves, looking to the situation, their future looks bleak. It looks like they're simply ceased to exist, ceased to be a people. And they are full of fear. And this is the immediate context to which the Lord gives these words of comfort to his suffering people. And in a sense, these hurting people are very similar to us. See, unlike what we saw in the first 39 chapters of the book, where, where God actually speaks directly to the people, speaks directly to the leaders through his prophet Isaiah, here God speaks to his people, not directly through his prophet, but by his written word, by the word that his prophet wrote down 150 years earlier. God is comforting his people by his written word. And these same words spoken directly to God's people 150 years after they were written, they speak to the church throughout church history. They speak to us still today, written 2,700 years ago. See, we too face fears. We too face uncertainties. We are overwhelmed. We feel weak. We feel powerless. See, there are are many things outside of our control, things that can hurt us, things that cause us fear. We just heard about them in our, in our prayer requests. Things that cause us fear. We, 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 we fear for our safety. We, we fear illnesses. We fear becoming disabled, being dependent on others. We fear the loss of a loved one. We fear for our own economic security. Right, we see our, our savings decrease. We see our expenses increase. Our salaries stagnate or, or fear even losing jobs. Some people even losing jobs. We fear violence. We, we fear that our nation may be brought into a war. We see, we see the war in Ukraine and we're afraid that we might get sucked into a war with Russia. We're afraid of superbugs. We're afraid of the next mutation of COVID. We're afraid of AI taking over the world. There's so many things that we can be afraid of. We, we really want to stay in bed and just pull the covers over our head when you think about how many things we have to fear. And oftentimes we are overwhelmed by these fears. There seems to be nothing that we can do to overcome these fears. Well, this passage that we're studying this morning, this passage is the power, has the power to overcome these fears. And it's not by anything that we do, but rather it reminds us, it reminds us the reality of God, of who God is, and the reality of who we are as his people. This is the great strength of this passage. And this passage speaks as much to us today as it did to the the original audience. 
And really, as I was studying this, what I, what I recognized in this passage is it reminded me of an avalanche. You just think of an avalanche of snow just coming and burying you. Well, this is an avalanche of God's truth. And it just seems like it just comes, it just hits us multiple things. The truth of, of, of God's power to take away these fears. And there are so many, so many treasures in this sort passage. Treasures that I think give us peace and give us comfort as we're facing fears. And what we're going to do is we're going to go through this passage verse by verse. Actually, we're going to go through this passage word by word as we mine these treasures and just be prepared to be hit by this, this avalanche of God's truth that I think will overwhelm our fears. So let's start with the first two words of this chapter. But now, but now. The first two words of this chapter, I think what they do is they indicate a transition. A transition from what we, what we saw before. It shows that, that things have changed from the previous verses. See, God's people, they were in the midst of, of real problems, real difficulties, real trials. But now, but now shows this transition. It shows that this is not the end of the story. And it's so important for us to remember when we are in trials, when we are in difficulties, remember those but nows of our lives. So many times when we find ourselves in difficult situations, really situations that seem to be hopeless, you know, it could be that diagnosis that we got. You know, I think of my friend Stacy who got this diagnosis of, from a human perspective, it looks pretty grim. Or financial, when you lost your job, you've got debts, and you don't know how you're gonna, how you're gonna make it. Or it could be relational, where you have this, this conflict with a loved one that you just can't seem to resolve. And things seem desperate. All seems lost. The situation seems hopeless. Then, give, then God gives us the but nows. He gives us the transition. And that changes everything. But really nothing has changed. What God does is he simply reveals to us more of his plan. More of his reality. He shows us what we did not see before. He shows us the things that are promised to us in his word. He basically opens the eyes of our faith to see this deeper reality. And my friends, when we are in a desperate situation, when we are attempted to give in to fear and worry, we need to remember. Remember that things are not always the way they seem. Things can change in an instant as as God opens our eyes to what he is really doing. Opens our eyes to the fact that what we thought God meant to, for, for our, our harm is actually he's using it for our good. We see this deeper reality that God is doing these things for our good and for his glory. And my friends, this fact alone, this fact alone, this knowledge alone is enough to free us from fear. It is enough to free us from worry. It is enough to give us that, that peace of God that passes all understanding. And this is just the beginning. This is just the beginning of this avalanche. Let's look at the next four words. Thus says the Lord. Thus says Yahweh. That's what the original is. It's using the covenant name of the Lord. And these are the words of our God, Yahweh, who is in relationship with his people. And we see this covenant aspect reinforced by the way God addresses his people as, O Jacob, as, O Israel. He's referring to them by the name of the patriarch in whom God had made a covenant. And as such, the covenant continues with the physical descendants of Jacob, who now find themselves in captivity. And God is reminding them. He's reminding them that he has not forgotten them. He's reminding them that they are not forgotten. He has not forgotten his covenant with them. 
And the way God identifies himself to his people as Yahweh, and the way he refers to his people as Jacob and Israel, this highlights this covenant faithfulness that God has, and and it brings much comfort to the hurting people. But this comfort is not limited only to God's Old Testament people. It's even more true. It's even more applicable to his New Testament people. See, in the Old Testament, God's people were the nation of Israel, a tribe, the, the 12 tribes descending from Jacob. But now the covenant belongs to all those, all those who are in his church. God has a special relationship with his people, with his church. We are now in covenant with him. We are now the people of God. And God starts with affirming his covenantal relationship with with his people, his covenantal commitment to his people. He's assuring them that he is for them. He is assuring them that he is with us. But then, then he shows us that he's for us, then he shows us his power. God, who, who affirms his commitment to his people, continues by describing himself as he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel. And the Hebrew word here for created, it's barah. This is the same word that we see in Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created, barah, the heavens and the earth. And this highlights God's creative power, his power to bring something out of nothing. The Hebrew word here that is translated as formed, he, he who formed you, O Israel, is yatzah, which means to form or fashion or, or to create or craft out of existing material. Right? This is the, God, the way God crafted or formed a man out of the dust of the ground. He fashioned the woman out of the, the rib of the man, out of existing material. And I think these two words coming together here, this highlights the, the reality of spiritual regeneration. See, those who have been born again by grace alone, through faith alone, both in the Old Testament covenant community and in the New Testament church, they have been both formed, yatzah, and created, barah. See, each person is formed, yatsah, physically, when we are born out of genetic material inherited by our parents. This is the natural process directed by God. God uses the genetic material from our parents to form every single person. See, there are no accidental births. Each person is fashioned by God and directed by his providence. There are no ordinary births. The creation of a new life, this is a new image bearer of God, the triune God, this is always miraculous. And as miraculous as the physical forming of each person, even more miraculous is the spiritual creating of God's elect. See, at the point of regeneration, which is solely by God's grace, God imparts spiritual life to that which was spiritually dead. God creates, barah, this spiritual life in his elect when they are regenerated. And this new life, which is imparted by grace alone, is received by faith alone. Now, for the Old Testament saints, this faith was in God's promises of redemption. But for the New Testament believer, this side of the cross, we know what that faith is in. That faith is in the Lord Jesus Christ and his work, his person, his work. And can you see, can you see how this reality, both the physical and, and, and eternal life of our that is given to us by our covenant-keeping God. Can you see how this fact will, will chase away fears? My friends, we have eternal life in Christ. Ultimately, there is nothing that we should fear. Nothing can hurt us if we are in Christ. But even more importantly, the first half of this, we only looked at one half of one verse so far. God here is taking our eyes off ourselves. God is taking our eyes off of our situation, the situation that causes our fear, and he's turning them to him. 
He's turning our eyes to him. See, it's impossible to fear anything, really. Fear anything other than God himself. And even fearing God himself, even, even fear of the Lord, this is, for the person who's in Christ, it is a joyous, it's a, a wonderful fear. It's, a, it's an awe of his majesty. We are filled with, with infinite joy because, because God becomes everything to us and we become nothing in his presence. That is what the fear of the Lord is. So, so far, God has, has not even spoken. We're just looking at the description. We're given immeasurable comfort simply by his description. Let's now look at the Lord's words. This makes up the remainder of the passage. So continuing in verse 1, the Lord says, fear not. That's the first words the Lord gives us here. Fear not. Do not be afraid. And this is really the message of the, the entire message of this passage. This is God's explicit message to his suffering people in Babylon. This is his explicit message to every single one of us here. Do not be afraid. Fear not. But it's more than just a message. It's actually a command. You really think it's a command. God here is commanding his people. He's commanding us not to be afraid, not to fear. See, we don't usually think about it this way. But to fear is actually sinful. Have you ever thought about that? To be afraid, to be fearful is actually sinning. We are actually disobeying an explicit command from our Lord. And we don't think of it this way because we don't like, we don't want to be afraid. See, fear is not something that we consciously seek out. We would much rather not be afraid, but it seems it's just a, <clears throat> something that we cannot not control. But fear is, is and, and fear is not even a, a sin we enjoy, right? We, we would think if it's a sin, we, there'd be some joy in it, right? Even if it's just for a brief moment. We know, we know that, uh, that the thrill is always overshadowed by the, by the pain and regret of sin, but at least there's something positive, no matter how small it is, in a sin. But with fear... Fear, there is no positive. Fear, there is no joy. It's miserable from start to finish to be afraid. But nevertheless, fear is sin. Fear is disobedient to God's clear command. And it's a sin for which we must repent. Every single one of us must repent of this and take steps to overcome. And this means we must take advantage of the means of grace God offers us to overcome this. And what we are doing now, worshiping, hearing God's word read and preached, what we'll do this evening, celebrating the sacraments. This is what we must do to take care of these means of grace. But we also have the truth that's presented in this, in this passage. These also are means uh, to, to help us to overcome this fear. So God reveals comforting truth to overcome uh, the sin of fear in his words. So continuing in, in verse 1, the Lord says, so he says, fear not. And why? He says, for I have redeemed you. I have redeemed you. God has just told us in the last verse, verses in chapter 42, the reason for their misery, the reason for their suffering that they're experiencing. And the reason is their own sin. They disobeyed God. They rejected God. And now they are suffering the consequences. They have rebelled against God. And because of this, their fear is, is perfectly justified. If you're sinning, if you're going against God, you have a right to be scared. You have a right to be feared. That's the, the natural thing. It's perfectly justified. And there's nothing more terrifying. Nothing more terrifying than to have God as your enemy. <clears throat> and this is why we find these first words spoken by the Lord in this passage so comforting. The Lord says, I have redeemed you. And what this means is that the Lord is saying, I've restored the relationship. The Lord is saying, we're now good. You and I are now good. See, the sin of the people, <clears throat> the unfaithfulness of the people, that, that had brought a, a enmity between them and God. It was like a wall. It, it, the, the relationship was ruptured. 
And now it was instead of a, a, a joyous relationship, it's, a, it's one of hostility. <clears throat> I mean, a good example. Think of, a, think of a bitter divorce. Say there was an infidelity, unfaithfulness by one of the spouses. The relationship is then ruptured. Where there once was once, where there once was love, now there is only bitterness and hostility. Well, this is a situation God's people find themselves in with God. But God has redeemed them. God has taken the initiative. God has taken their initiative to restore the relationship. Where there once was, where they once were God's enemy, where there once was enmity, now God is their friend. <clears throat> and while God makes this promise in the Old Testament, this promise is not fulfilled until the New Testament. It is fulfilled on the cross. The redemption is purchased on the cross by Christ. This redemption is fulfilled in our justification. See, God takes the initiative and he pays the price. The redemption price, which is the the just punishment of our rebellion against him. And on the cross, Jesus suffers the penalty for our sins so that we can be pardoned. The sins that caused this barrier between us and God, it has been removed. They have been removed and they have been punished in Christ on the cross. Now we do not fear God because God is not against us. Rather, in Christ, God is for us. And and just just think about that for a second. God is for us. How amazing is that? If God is for us, who can be against us? If God is for us, whom shall we fear? And you see, as we continue, how God just, just piles up fact after fact, reality after reality of why we should not fear. And we are just, and we're still just in the first verse. This avalanche of truth continues to fall on us. Not only redeemed, but it continues to get better and better. Let's look at the, 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 the last part of verse 1. He says, I've called you by name. You are mine. Just think about that for a second. He's called us by name. We are his. The almighty God of the universe has called each one of us, each of his children, by name. See, we're not just treated as a collective. We're not just the American church, the evangelical church, Northgate church. No, we are known as individuals. Our relationship is personal. It's one-on-one. He calls us by name. I remember my first job out of college, and I went to this factory. I was working as a a new engineer in in a factory, and there were several thousand employees in this factory. And the general manager of of this factory, a man who was five levels above me, he was in charge of both this plant and another plant, he comes my first day where I was working. He came out to me. He comes to me, John, welcome aboard. Shakes my hand. I'd never met the man before. I didn't even recognize him. He came and shook me. Walt Schmidt, welcome aboard. And that caught my attention. This guy who's this far up takes notice to remember, to know my name and come in to introduce himself. Well, if you're a Christian, it's much, much better than that. We got the God of the universe knows our name. The creator of the, the trillions of galaxies, each with trillions of stars. He's the one who knows our name. The one who sustains every subatomic particle in that universe of trillions of trillions of stars. He is the one who knows your name. He has called you by name. With that reality, what should we be afraid of? What should we be afraid of? He's the one who says to us, you are mine. We belong to him. We can think of it. We are on his team. Our identity is in him. I mean, those of you who are sports fans, just think about when your team wins a championship. Think of those of you who are fans of, of, of Georgia football, University of Georgia, when they, when they won a national championship. Weren't you proud if you, were, if you were a student or if you were alumni or if you were a parent or just a fan? You felt like you participated in that victory. 
or watching the Olympics and seeing the U.S. pile up all the medals. You say, you're proud of your country. Say, look at what we're doing. My friends, we belong better than the University of Georgia or better than the United States Olympics team. We belong to the almighty, eternal, infinite God. We are on his team. We participate in his mission. And as Christians, we are united to Christ. His victory is our victory. Just this last week, Lynn shared with me a sermon she had heard earlier. I think it was by Sam Storms. And on this sermon, there was something that really clicked with me that that I heard. He said the main purpose, he was talking mainly to to pastors, but he said it applies to all Christians. He says the main purpose of a pastor or main purpose of a Christian is really the same purpose that God has. We share the same purpose that God has. And that is to make his glory known. That is to, to have his joy overflow to others. That's God's purpose, and that is our purpose. Our purpose is to share God's glory, his joy with others. As our catechism question says, our purpose is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And with such a, a noble calling, such a noble purpose, how can we ever get distracted by anything else? Illness, financial problems, why should that worry us? We are called to make God known, to bring him glory. Everything else is just a distraction. Everything else is noise. So how could we get fear? How can we be afraid of other things? You might be sitting there saying, yeah, yeah, yeah. But the truth is we do, right? We do. We do get afraid of other things. See, all these things we saw in this first verse, verse, they are amazing. They are reality. And when we're sitting here in church, we can get excited as we study these truths. And we can wonder, how could I ever be afraid? I'm free from worry. But then we go out there. Then we leave the comfort of the sanctuary where we're surrounded by God's people, where we we have the Holy Spirit's presence in a real and, and palpable way. Then we go out into the world, the world where they hate God, where they hate those who follow God, where we experience trials, where we're experiencing difficulties, where we experience tragedies. And then the fears come back. And God addresses these fears in the next verse. He talks about when you pass through the waters. And I can think of two specific times in the Old Testament. There may be more, but there's two that came to mind where God's people were called to pass through the waters. And just thinking of these two times, they would have been utterly terrifying to pass through the waters. But we need to understand, both of these times, it was God who commanded them to pass through the waters. They're not in a situation due to their own sin or rebellion that caused them to get to these waters. No, it was actually their obedience that brought them to the waters. So in other words, passing through the waters, this is not an anomaly. This is the natural result of following Christ. And hear hear this, If, if you're a Christian... You will at one time, if you are a faithful Christian, being faithful to Christ, you will pass through the waters. It is guaranteed. It's not, a, it's not an if. It, it's, it's not an if. It's a when. It's a guaranteed fact you will pass through the waters. This is a natural result of following Christ. So what does this mean? Well, the first example of passing through the waters, and you probably can think of it, is the Exodus. The Exodus, right? When, when, when Moses parted the Red Sea and the people crossed on dry land. Now, could you imagine seeing the, 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 the Red Sea parting? And, and, and some people speculate it might have been winds. It might have been some type of tornado that, that, that blew these waters across. And then God's people passed through. Now, can you imagine being one of God's people? You're walking through on this dry land, and you look at these, wall, these walls of water. I don't know how deep the Red Sea is, maybe 100 feet, 200 feet deep. And you see these walls up there, and there's this wind holding. And you know that at any moment, these, these walls can collapse on you, crushing you, instantly killing you. 
I think there would be much fear and trembling. I think I would be running as fast as I could through there. But you remember the situation. The, 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 the Israelites were actually trapped on the Red Sea. Remember, God had led his people out of Egypt, and he led them right up to the Red Sea, and then the Egyptian army was behind them. And they were trapped. They, they thought they were going to get killed. There was certain death by the Egyptians. And God opens the Red Sea. And, and they really have no options. They may be terrified of going through there, but they know it's certain death if they stay where they are. And oftentimes, the motivation that God uses for us to overcome something terrifying is the fact that something even more terrifying will happen to us if we don't do anything. But the second situation in the Old Testament of passing through the waters, it's, it's, it's different. This is, this is the situation, and you may be thinking of it, in Joshua, where God commands his people to cross the Jordan River and enter the Promised Land. And this way, this time I think will be even more terrifying than the situation of crossing the Red Sea. So this time there's no Egyptians trying to kill him, no Egyptians following him. And the text tells us in Joshua that the Jordan River is at flood stage. And I don't know if you've ever seen a river at flood stage. I remember my uh, parents, they have a little stream in, their, in the back of their house. And it's a little trickling stream. We go play in the brook. But when it rains hard, that stream becomes a roaring river. It comes up over the banks. There would be no hope. If, if you fall in there, you're just swept off to the lake that's about a mile away. There's no way that you could survive falling into that little stream. So think of the Jordan River at flood stage. If they would go in, it, it, would, it would kill them at this time. And th- this is what they're called. And it's even, it's even different than that. See, unlike with the Red Sea, where, God, where Moses parted the Red Sea, and then it's dry land they pass on, God commands his people in Joshua to actually go in while it's, while it's raging. So I can imagine the terrified, this raging river. And it's not you can just stick your toe in. It's kind of like a, a bank. And so you, you're either in or you're not in. So they had to plunge in. So either God was going to be faithful and stop those waters, or they were going to be down into the, into the Dead Sea. That was the only hope that they had. But that's, that's, the, that's the terror that you see of, of, uh, following, of, of passing through the waters. Now, for each of us following the Lord, I think we're going to be called to a passing through the waters time. And I, I, think, I really think it's going to be, uh, involve a, a passing through a raging flood. I don't think that's what it's talking about. But it will involve something that is equally overwhelming. That's the thing. It's something equally overwhelming that every single, and many of you have been through things like that already. You know, a, a call to go overseas to become a missionary, right? With all the, the hardships and the dangers and, and the unknowns that, that that entails. The call to face financial hardship to, to, to serve Christ instead of, instead of going into the ministry as opposed to, to going and having a lucrative career in business. How about the ruining of your reputation? for standing on biblical principles. I heard a uh, testimony, a, a, a pastor had gone to a, a um, fundraiser for, a, for a, a pregnancy crisis center, and the actor, Kirk Cameron, was there speaking. And he said when he came out for Christ, he basically became toxic. He was unemployable in Hollywood because of his commitment to Christ, his outspoken commitment to Christ. And that happens to many people. In academia, if you come out uh, uh, as a supporter of Christ, you are unemployable. So financial ruining. There can be physical dangers for the cause of Christ. There can be severe conflicts that come in relationships because you're following Christ. These are the the, the many waters that we are called to pass through in our Christian life, in our faithfulness to Christ. Now the question is, what is the key? What is the key to being able to pass through these waters? The key is that we're not alone. Look at the next couple of words. It says, when you pass through the waters... I will be with you. 
I will be with you. See, this is the key. Christ goes with us through these waters. We're not alone. And he gives us the grace we need to endure the difficulty. He sustains us. He sustains us with his power. We don't fear because Christ is walking alongside of us. Oftentimes, Christ is actually carrying us through every difficulty. And because Christ is with us, we are assured of the next truth that we are told in this verse. It says, and through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. So what's this saying? It's saying we will be successful. We will be successful in the call that the Lord has given us. When we obediently, when obediently following his will brings us to these overwhelming waters, we know, we know that we will be able to go through them, that we will not be overwhelmed, but rather we will be successful. And we will bring him glory as we pass through the waters. And it's important for us to know this truth now before we pass through the waters. See, our, our, often our fears are not fears in the moment, but rather anticipation of what might be. We're okay right now, but we're afraid, you know, what's going to happen you know, if, if I lose my job? What's going to happen if I get sick? What's going to happen? And we keep worrying, we pray these scenarios over and over in our mind. My friends, this is the devil's trap. See, the devil wants us to constantly worry, constantly be afraid of what might be. See, God doesn't give us tomorrow's grace today. God gives us grace for the moment. And we must rely on that grace in the moment and trust. Trust that when he calls, if he calls us to go through that water, he will give us grace. He will be with us at that time. He's not giving us the grace at the moment. He's not giving us this future grace. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. See, we, and, and its own trouble and its own grace will be provided. We do not fear the what-ifs because we trust that God will be with us and he will provide the grace needed for the moment. Continuing in verse 2, we see a parallel promise given. He says, when you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flames shall not consume you. And this is a very similar promise, right, given about passing through the waters. But I think there's a key difference here. And I think this verse is really a prophecy about an event that would actually take place in the Babylonian, uh, in Babylon during captivity. And probably many of you are thinking of this incident right now. This should bring to mind the incident of the fiery furnace from the book of Daniel, chapter 3. And in that incident, the, the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, he constructed this golden image and he commanded all of his officials to bow down. He, he would get this music and this band, they'd play the music. And when the band stopped playing, everyone had to bow down to this image. But there were three Hebrew slaves, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So when the music stopped, they refused to worship. Can you imagine maybe hundreds of people there all bowed down. You can see these three people sticking up. And Nebuchadnezzar gives them another chance, but they say, we will not bow down. We will not bow down to your image. So they're thrown into the, into the fiery furnace. And I think this prophecy uh, was fulfilled in this event. The three men were cast into the furnace, but they were not alone. Nebuchadnezzar's own testimony reports of seeing a fourth man in the fire with them. And it says the man was described as looking like a son of the gods. And Nebuchadnezzar saw not the son of the gods, but rather he saw the pre-incarnate son of the God. He saw the Lord Jesus Christ protecting his servants from the flames so it did not consume them. So I think the difference here between the fires and the waters, I believe the, the fire is specifically refers to the fire of persecution, where the, where the waters is, is, is faithfulness, is, is following faithfulness. 
So God's people will face persecution, including even up to martyrdom. And we see this played out in, in history with the literal burning of martyrs at the stake. While, while their bodies may have been consumed by the flames, their faith and their witness was not consumed. And this caused much frustration among, among the, among the uh, executioners because they really didn't want to kill the Christians. What they wanted is the Christians to recant their faith. That is what they wanted. They wanted to stop this Christianity. But they refused to do it. And rather than stamp out the church, you know what happened? You know what this persecution did? It simply caused the church to grow. You probably heard the statement that says the, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And no matter how hard they tried, no matter how cruel they were with their persecution, the church continued to grow. The testimony of actual martyrs of church history tells of, of the remarkable comfort and strength that God provided to his people while they were going to be able to endure the horrors they were subjected to. I think of the reformer John Huss, who was, uh, who was burned at the stake for criticizing the Catholic Church. And while he was burned alive at the stake, you know what he was doing? He was singing hymns. He was singing hymns. The English reformers, Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Rid Ridley, who were, uh, who were burned at the stake for, for denying that Christ was physically present in the, in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. They were burned at the stake. Well, Latimer famously said to Ridley these words. He says, play the man, Master Ridley. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust shall never be put out. He says while he is being burned alive at the stake. And though their bodies were consumed by the, by the flames, their testimony was not. We remember their names. It went forth mightily throughout England. And this is supernatural. This is supernatural comfort. This is not what you would expect. This is not what you expect to, as a natural response to these horrors. You would expect the people to give up and say whatever you want so they wouldn't be burned alive. But no, God had preserved them. God had given them. He was with them. The, the, the flames did not consume their, their faith. Their faith was not put out by the flames. But rather, this was a fulfillment of the promises in this verse. Now, the first part of verse 3 gives us a reminder of who is promised to be with us in the waters, the waters of faithful obedience, and who is promised to be with us in the flames of cruel persecution. And it says, For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Again, God uses his covenant name. It is the covenant-keeping God who is with us. He is our God. We belong to him. We are in a personal relationship with him. He is the Holy One of Israel. He is unique. He is not like any other God. He is the Almighty God, and, and most comforting of all, He's our Savior. He is the, the guarantor of our eternal security, which means it is absolutely certain. And these are, are, are quite powerful truths that cause us not to fear. But the last part of verse 3 may be confusing. And it almost seems out of place. It, it seems like it's, it starts with completely different subjects. We didn't even sing about it. It wasn't in the song that we just sang. So what does this mean? It says, I give Egypt as your ransom and Cush and Seba in exchange for you. What's this talking about? Well, I think what this is saying is that God's grace, God, the, the grace that God's people received, is coming at someone else's expense. The grace is coming at someone else's expense. The blessing that Israel received during the Exodus was at the expense of Egypt. Right? When they left Egypt, they plundered the Egyptians. Uh, the materials that was used to construct the tabernacle in the wilderness, it came from the Egyptians. When God saved the Israelites through the Red Sea, the Egyptians that followed, they perished. The promised land that was given to the Israelites, it was actually in heaven. It wasn't an empty promised land. 
And when they entered the promised land, God commanded that they kill all the inhabitants. Think about that. In Jericho, the first city attacked, they were commanded to kill everything. Man, woman, children, animal, and devoted all to destruction. Everything except for Rahab and her family. And some may react in horror with this. Some may say, not my God. My God would never do that. My God loves everyone. He would never bless one people at the expense of another. That is evil. That is barbaric. Well, this would be true if the people being cursed for the benefit of God's people were themselves innocent. That would be unjust. But my friends, this is not the case. The pagans surrounding Israel, they were evil. The Egyptians were evil. The Canaanites were evil. They practiced human sacrifice, child sacrifice, torture, cruelty, blasphemy. Those were all common in these cultures. And God was using Israel to bring justice to this people. These people were not innocent. And this is the important part we need to understand. There is nobody that is innocent. Everyone is guilty. And every person who is not in Christ is guilty before God. And those people, for those who are not in Christ, everything that I've said before the sermon is not true. If you're not in Christ, you should be afraid. You certainly should be afraid. Because if you're not in Christ, God is your enemy. If you're not in Christ, you are a guilty sinner before a just God. If you're not in Christ, this means you are in big trouble. A terrible fate beyond really anything that we can comprehend awaits for those who are not in Christ. So if you're not in Christ, you should fear. Hear these words that Nathan read for us from Jesus himself, from our gospel reading this morning from Luke 13. Jesus says, strive to enter through the narrow door. Listen to this. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and knock at the door saying, Lord, open to us. Then he will answer you, I do not know where you come from. Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And you will see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. And people will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first, and some are first who will be last. My friends, now is the time of grace. Now is the time of grace. And if you don't belong to Christ, if you are not united and by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, no matter all the good that you have now, all the blessings you seem to have now, it's all pointless. Because you will face ultimate and eternal tragedy. So if you do not belong to Christ, there's only one application. As every sermon I've ever preached, there's only one application. To come to Christ. Come to Christ. But if you do belong to Christ, for those who are in Christ, our application is simple. Fear not. Fear not. Look at the avalanche of truth that we just looked at, contained in these three short verses. And know that for those who are united to Christ, there is nothing that we have to fear. In fact, all we have, we, we should be filled with, with unspeakable joy and confidence in our Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these verses. We thank you for these verses that you have given to us. We thank you for the truths contained in them. We thank you that we do not have anything to fear. That there is no fear for those who are in Christ. I pray if there are any here, any listening on the live stream, any listening 10 years from now on Sermon Audio who do not belong to you, I pray that you will change that now. 
You will open their eyes to the dangerous situation they are in and open their eyes while it is still the time of grace to come to you by faith and receive this comfort, receive this joy. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.